0: Good morning church. Um, it's been a privilege. I could talk a lot more about how humbled I am to, to be serving Frisco Bible Church in this role. I uh, won't take a ton of time except to say thank you. Uh, my family has been blessed largely uh, due to uh, children's ministry, kids' ministry. They've, they've found relationships and received uh, all kinds of encouragement even in the most recent four or five months. Uh, my wife and I connecting in Bible studies and women's Bible studies we've been in some of your homes and uh, in some of your pools already and we're just really uh, humbled and and grateful to be a part of this church and and privileged to open God's Word uh, to teach this morning. Um, I uh, was pulling in this morning and about took one of the better uh, parking places with the justification in my mind that I'm going to be here all day and my son needs a place in the shade and was happy to, and I'm, I'm I'm losing all my heavenly rewards, and that's okay, but just to say I was happy to go and find just the worst parking space, because in my mind and in my heart, I really was so grateful to have the best seat in the house, just to use how the Lord, I believe, has gifted me to serve this church, and so I look forward to whatever the Lord has in store. I, I'm humbled uh, to, to be um, uh, with you this morning, and so without further ado, just to get to know me, something I like to do, would you stand, if you're able to, for the reading of God's Word, um, and I will read for us. We're reading out of the the CSB, Psalm 48, continuing our study, uh, the Songs of the Sons of Korah. Uh, Let me read for us, Psalm 48. A song, a psalm of the sons of Korah, the Lord is great and highly praised in the city of our God. His high, there is holy mountain rising splendidly, is the joy of the whole earth. Mount Zion, the summit of Zaphon, is the city of the great king. God is known as a stronghold in its citadels. Look, the kings assembled. They advanced together. They looked and froze with fear. They fled in terror. Trembling seized them there. Agony like that of a woman in labor, as you, referring to God here, wrecked the ships of Tarshish with the east wind. Just as we heard, so we have seen in the city of the Lord of armies, in the city of our God. God will establish her forever, Selah. God, within your temple, we contemplate your faithful love. That's hesed. Like your name, God, so your praise reaches to the ends of the earth, your right hand is filled with justice. Mount Zion is glad. Judah's villages rejoice because of your judgments. Go around Zion. Encircle it. Count its towers. Note its ramparts. Tour its citadel so that you can tell a future generation this God, our God forever and ever, will always lead us. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let me pray for us for your sake and for mine. You're welcome to pray where you are um, quietly. If you don't mind, uh, pray with me. Uh, Father, we do bow our heads. We bow our hearts. We recognize our need for you even now, uh, especially now as your word is read and taught and applied to our hearts. Holy Spirit, be the teacher that I'm simply not expected to be. Convince us all, convict us of your truth, and may we leave differently because of it. In Christ's name, everybody who wants that said, amen, Amen. me too. I've not had the privilege of visiting Israel, not yet, and this is not a plug for the Israel trip next year that will come after the sermon, but I've not had, I guess it is now, huh? Um, I've not had the privilege of walking in any of my Savior's uh, earthly footsteps. The closest I've come to the Middle East is probably Romania. Which is to say, not very close. <laughs> if I could go any one place, it would probably be the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, there's, if I went there, and you're probably going, no, 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 you don't even know. And you're right, I don't. Alright, don't rub it in if you've been. However, in my mind, I think I'd prefer to go if I could just go one place, it would, would be the Garden of Gethsemane. For obvious reasons, perhaps, to go in and pray there. Um, and I know it's somewhat touristy, but to go there and pray where Christ so often retreated to pray, uh, to go and to, to, to pray in the very place where it seems, according to the Gospels, he really began to feel physically, spiritually, in some profound sense, um, you know, emotionally the pain of my sin. I would love to go to the Garden of Gethsemane. But while I have not been to Israel, and some of you know my plight, you're with me, Though we have not been to Israel, some of us, the writer of Hebrews tells me good news this morning. He writes that I have come to Mount Zion, what he calls the heavenly Jerusalem. Let me read from Hebrews 12. It might say Romans in your notes. Be assured, it is Hebrews chapter 12. The writer of Hebrews says this, writes this, For you have not come to what could be touched, to a blazing fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to the blast of a trumpet and the sound of words. Those who heard it begged that not another word be spoken to them, for they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. The appearance was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. You have not come to that mountain, verse 22. Instead, you have come to Mount Zion. To the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to myriad of angels, a festive gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn, whose names have been written in heaven, to a judge who is God of all, to the spirits of the righteous people made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. Shall we just pray and leave there? That's good. The message is this, God is unapproachably holy, except with one really significant exception, by faith in Christ according to a better covenant. Uh, One pastor, John Gill, 18th century English Baptist pastor, says this on Hebrews chapter 12. He says, by Mount Zion is meant the church of God under the gospel dispensation to which the believing Hebrews had come. In distinction from the legal dispensation signified by Mount Sinai from which they were delivered. And it is called Mount Zion because like it it is beloved of God, chosen by him, and is the place of his habitation where his worship is and his word and ordinances are administered. Here he communes with his people and distributes his blessings in this, that is the church, as Mount Zion is. And listen, he's quoting our psalm here. It's a perfection of beauty and the joy of the whole earth. And So here's our task today. It's not so much a task as an experience. We are going to follow the, t- the, the psalmist here as a tour guide. So the psalmist here in Psalm 48, as our tour guide, we are going to take a tour of God's holy mountain. And what I think we'll see here, that's the goal, I've not succeeded if we don't, what is true of God in his great city is true of God in his gospel. Like any experienced tour guide, the psalmist invites us into far more than just a sight-seeing trip. Notice the verbs in our psalm. Notice the intense, active verbs here. These are not passive. He says, look, contemplate, encircle, walk around, right? Number, calculate, do some math, which some of you guys have left the tour at that point, but hang with me. Like, look around, look closely. Note in verse 13, tour the city in verse 13b. And here's what's significant He's not talking to tourists, He's not talking to foreigners, He's talking to people who, this is their city. They visit every so often. Some might even have the, the, the brilliant luxury of living near the, the temple or Jerusalem or uh, these ramparts and castles that they, they have the privilege of looking so closely at here. They are familiar with this. And yet he says, look and contemplate and circle and number and tour like you were from out of town. What he's doing here, he's taking a page out of Peter First Peter, Second Peter one, ten through thirteen, encourage you to read it. But in summary, Peter goes, basically, I know as you grow in sanctification that you have even more hope that you're going to enter, quote, the eternal kingdom of Jesus Christ. And so he says, I know you're established in the truth in Second Peter chapter one, but I'm doing my job as a pastor, he says, and I'm stirring you up by way of reminder. I'm telling you stuff you already know, because it seems like maybe you've forgotten. Now, how, how often do we do communion around here? I think it's monthly, yes? And we're told to do it regularly. We're told to do it frequently. And, and scripture often, it covers a lot of ground. And there's a lot of topics that the scriptures teach us on how to live. And we're grateful for that. But let's, let's be honest and realize much of scripture points us back to the basics frequently. Why? We are a forgetful people. Amen? And so we need this today. We need to take a tour similar to that of the psalmist to his readers. Wendy Bright is an art historian and founder of Windy City Tours in, you guessed it, Chicago. The spelling is correct. It's called a pun. Everybody with us? There's not a mistype. Okay, so Windy City Tours. Sarah took a trip on the 1950s nightlife tour and said this. I've lived in Chicago my entire life, 36 years, and I learned so many new things and saw amazing, beautiful places I never knew existed. When you live somewhere, you don't always take advantage of all it has to offer, and you go about your daily activities missing all the what? Beauty around you. How sad is that? And in Chicago, there's some cities where you're going, I don't care to really know too much about my city, but what a beautiful storied city Chicago is. And how sad it would be to say that about your own city. The magnificent architectures to her, this 36 year old woman had become buildings, fixtures, stuff where people live and work. How sad, a beautiful city with lots of history. And so this morning, God forbid, we uh, miss out on the beauty and the strength, and as we'll see, the the mercy and justice of our God. Perhaps be so close, live around the gospel uh, in such proximity, and yet take these beautiful things for granted. And so let's take a tour of Mount Zion and be taught this morning, some of us. Others of us may be stirred up by way of reminder. Our first stop is to consider the beauty of God in the gospel. The psalmist takes us in our mind's eye this morning to Mount Zion. Look at verses 1 and 2. We begin here to see the beauty of God in Mount Zion and we'll make this beautiful transition to see the beauty of God in much the same way in the gospel. In verses 1 and 2, he points out God's greatness twice. He points out his high praiseworthiness points out his holiness and his splendor. And the word splendor there can and is translated beautiful. And for uh, a, a male, for a man, it's often translated handsome. Okay, See, these are attractive aspects and characteristics of God being pointed out here in verses 1 and 2. And I love in verse 2 the word zaphon. Uh, in CSB, you just have a rough translation to the English transliteration of what it says in the Hebrew. It says zaphon. You might be reading a different translation this morning and it says in the far north, right? God's holy mountain rises splendidly in the far north. It's like this "Ah," lights going up underneath it. It's this glorious revelation of God's holy city. That's the closest I'm going to come to a voice this morning, by the way. You should know. It's this aha moment seeing God's mountain rise up. The problem with the translation far north, it's interesting, uh, because it is not geographically or topographically at all the case. Mount Sinai is neither the tallest mountain or the more, most northernmost mountain. So why Zephon? Well, Zephon is a word. It's an idiom. It's a traditional expression that communicates how something is high and lifted up. It's, it's elevated due to its great worth. It's put on display for all to see. You do this in your homes when you decorate, most of you, some of you. Uh, Don't email me about exceptions. I I noticed this this morning in Wayne's office. In there preparing, charging my iPad and praying. And I noticed his beautiful bookcases lining his office. There were uh, lots of books. And and even if they cost a couple bucks, they're invaluable to him because he's obsessed. I mean, he likes books. And I can relate, actually. So all these really valuable books because they matter to him. But reserved uh, for the top shelf of these beautiful bookcases is what? If you've been in there... It's photos of his family, right? It's probably really expensive tea and chocolate. It's really cool missions artifacts, along with some really weird origami stuff. But that's all right. Let's just want it. The rest are pretty consistent. It's really valuable family, uh, meaningful stuff. They have been zephoned, so to speak, to turn it into a verb. They've been elevated and put on the top shelf. Why? Because they are of utmost value. They get priority placement because of their worth. Now watch how Paul describes this, how how, how God puts on display his character and his wisdom in the gospel. Ephesians chapter 3, Paul writes this, this grace was given to me, the least of all the saints, to proclaim to the Gentiles, to the world, right, the incalculable riches of Christ and to shed light for all. About the ministration of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. This is so that, here's the reason, God's multifaceted. Now stop. If I was Wayne, I would say this is so cool. Okay, His multifaceted. I love the word here. It's colorful. It's variegated. It's, it's the same word James used to talk about various troubles and tribulations, right? Except this, it's good. In this place, it, it's multicolored. It's the color wheel. It's lots of bright light showing his multifaceted wisdom. Let's keep reading. That that multifaceted wisdom may be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavens. This is in accordance to the eternal purpose accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. One more. First Peter 2. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession. How good this is. He says, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Right there, you have the, the beauty, the contrast between darkness and mar- not just light. Spectrum in light form marvelous lights. And that word for proclaiming his praise, that's the idea of his inherent value. It's moral excellence and virtue. God is inherently at his core and could be no other than good. And it's bright, and it's beautiful, and it's captivating. The good news of the gospel, this story of redemption through Christ, makes God look good. It puts on display His great wisdom to make this thing work the way that it has. The angels look down from heaven, created, and so therefore limited to space and time, they're seeing this unfold, and they rejoice to see Christ die. Gentiles saved, the gospel spread the wisdom of God, the character of God put on display. And for those of us by God's grace this morning who have eyes to see the beauty in this message, we can relate to this. We know that, that this is the thing. This is the message. This is the, the, the thing in the field that we sell it all by the field and dig up this truth. Yes, this is the thing according to Matthew chapter 13 where Jesus says this is how valuable the kingdom is. People sell everything and buy this pearl this priceless pearl. They sell everything by this field because the gospel's in there. And I can't help but think about things being lifted up, put on beautiful display without thinking of Jesus' words in John chapter 12. He says, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. He said this, John writes, because we might be thinking resurrection, but he says he said this to indicate what kind of death he was about to die. Now, the ironic thing about this passage being a support of this idea that elevated things are beautiful is the fact that the cross repelled, at least on that day and for days and weeks to come, it repelled far more than it attracted, right? Have you read the story? If you haven't read the story, it repelled far more than it would attract at least in the hours and days and weeks, even his most loyal followers. It would repel them because he is our our king. He is this Savior. He's this Christ, not just a Christ, the Christ. And here he is, dead. Without understanding, the cross didn't look as beautiful to them. And it repelled more than it attracted. But some would, across time, and this is what Jesus meant, in time, people would see the work of the cross and find it beautiful. I think John chapter 12 is why we make jewelry out of crosses, I think James Avery has Jesus to thank here for being in business. That Jesus would be raised up and others would find it beautiful. Otherwise, how ironic that we would turn something so rugged and gruesome into jewelry. And yet, how beautiful and how appropriate it is. That we would look at the cross and see such beauty. Why? Because it puts on a brilliant display. It zaphones the the love, the hesed of God, his praiseworthiness, his his holiness in vibrant, colorful array. Christian, is this true in your heart and mind this morning? And even if you walked in this morning, have you been stirred up by way of reminder taking this stop of the tour? I think you have... Let's move on. Second stop on our tour, the psalmist takes us to this place and pieces and stories of Mount Zion that would remind us of the strength of God. And here we will see the strength of God to save in the gospel. Look at verses 3 through 8 and and kind of uh, sprinkled uh, around there as well. But look at verse 3. God is known as a stronghold. Right? We've celebrated the beauty of God. We've walked over here and now we're considering uh, the, the strong walls. And the tour guide, the psalmist, is telling us, let me tell you about God's character. Let me tell you about what God is famous for. He's famous for being a refuge, for being a stronghold. In verse 4 and, and 5 and around there, he tells this story of these kings assembled to attack, but they end up fleeing in terror. They experience agony like that of childbirth, which I hear is... Not fun. They're wrecked. They're afraid. They're intimidated. And then verse 13, he he, guiding them again, he draws their attention to the ramparts, uh, the citadels, the defensive structures, the strong, thick walls of this city. And here's the idea of, of all of this. This city, the city of our living God is impenetrable. When under attack, this is where you want to be and under whose rule and reign you want to be. Because according to his promise, you will be safe. But, but I love that the psalmist doesn't just depict a God that plays really good defense, right? Defense does win championships, but you've got to put the ball in the basket every once in a while, right? You've got to play offense or why show up. We only talk about defense, which bugs me, by the way. We only talk about defense winning championships because somebody's playing offense. And so here we see a powerful God who plays strong defense against any enemy bold enough to attack, but he also is a fierce warrior. Our God plays offense. Amen. Look at verses seven and eight. He says, "You wrecked the ships of Tarshish with the east wind." The east wind—it's this idea of divine judgments. This is ferocious terror and wrath on all who would threaten God's people here. Verse 8, the psalmist describes him as the Lord of angel armies. Oh, wait, that's Tomlin. Uh, Chris Tomlin said, he's the Lord of angel armies. He's what? He's always on our side. We don't sing that song enough, evidently. But in verse 8, he's described as the Lord of armies or the Lord of hosts. That is his name. By definition, our God has armies and does warfare, and praise God, because are we not at war? We forget this, and I imagine as they're walking around these cities uh, and walking around these walls, today you can go there, and there are guardrails, and you can tour the city and tour the ramparts. There are rampart tours. Again, never been there, but I have Google. There are rampart tours. You go on these guided hand-railed stairs and, and aisles along the wall, and I, I imagine they would see chips and cracks in the wall, imperfections, right? There would be evidence of the, the, an arrowhead flying or maybe a char on the wall from some firebomb or something. I, I haven't studied ancient military tactics or anything, but you get the idea. On these walls, they, they most likely weren't pristine, certainly throughout time. But they would be evidence of walls that still stood. Yes? While, imper- while imperfect, while chipped or charred, they stood, reminding that this is a place of war. Where we have been attacked and our God, according to his promise, has kept us safe look at the strength of these walls they illustrate for us the strength of our God this is the power of our God and what I love if we consider Mount Zion the way that the writer of Hebrews would have us consider it metaphorically or figuratively Uh, Kidner one theologian says this the church can sing the triumph of the gospel sing this song they can sing Psalm 45 with the triumph of the gospel in mind Spurgeon says it this way, Charles Hatton Spurgeon says, Even thus shall the haters of the church vanish from the field. Right? Thinking of the Tarshish Navy fleeing in terror. And I think this is true. With an eye on the finished work of Christ, we absolutely can see this. Look at how Paul says it in Colossians chapter 2. And when you were dead in trespasses and sin and in the uncircumcision of your flesh... He made you alive with him and forgave us all our trespasses. He erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it away by nailing it on the cross. And read verse 15 with me. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in him. I love thinking about verse 15 again with that that Nineveh uh, army or navy in flight. He has disgraced them publicly, triumphed over them. Our God is strong to save. He's also able to keep. Amen. This is good news. Praise God for a God who can save and forgive. But man, do we need keeping. Paul writes this in Romans chapter 8, I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present or things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depths, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. The truth is, Christian, only in Christ is our soul safe, and only in Christ is our future secure with none other than, as the psalmist says, the Lord of armies." He's promised to do that today. To protect, to keep. I think about Peter. Jesus informing Peter. Jesus having an eye on the spiritual realm that perhaps we're limited to. And Jesus saying, hey Peter, let me give you a little heads up. This is the kind of intel that we say we want but we don't want to know. Right? And Jesus says, let me give you a heads up. Satan has desired to sift you. He's working overtime to separate you from me so that you do not abide. I added the last part, but you get the idea. He wants to split us up. But what did Jesus say in response? But what? I have prayed for you. Jesus currently, as we sit, as I stand at the right hand of God, having saved, fulfilling his priestly uh, intercession work, in a very real sense, keeping us safe, loving him, keeping us Uh, mindful of using the grace of preaching maybe this morning to remind you again of this great truth that he is a God who saves and he is a God who keeps but to what extent look at verse 14 we read in the CSB it says he will always lead us but when read literally there and some translations capture this it says he will guide us into death you get the idea it's largely the same but this is worth kind of looking into And understanding that He will guide us even into death. Christian, what security do we have because of the strong arm of God to protect, to rescue, to save, and to keep His people? Amen? Final stop on our tour. They get back in the bus, drive a little bit further. It seems like they're driving around Israel in there. I know they don't have buses. Go with me. They're driving around uh, Zion here, and he's pointing out this third thing, and that is the righteousness of God here. Look at the righteousness of God in Zion, verses 10 and 11. But even the word righteousness kind of pings me a little bit, sends up a little bit of a flag. We're, We're about to celebrate this, but it typically doesn't get a lot of good press, the idea of righteousness it Sounds good. We all want a righteous and a fair judge. We all love the idea of justice, that is, until we deserve it. But this isn't that. This isn't a self-centered uh, uh, celebration of God's righteousness. This is a God-centered one. It may not get a good rap. It may be very intimidating. But here, the idea of righteousness is praised. Look at verse 10. God's uh, global praise... Or God gets global praise because in his right hand is righteous justice. In verse 11, God's people rejoice. It says they're glad because of his righteous judgments. Essentially, what the psalmist is saying here is our sovereign king, our great God, is good and does good. Again, Christian, maybe a reality that you're so familiar with that you haven't paused, taken a step back, entured and meditated, considered deeply to know the ramifications of this. If he is a good judge, and if he is divine, then he is in fact a perfect judge. The writer of Hebrews says that, again, when we have come to Christ, we have come to a judge who is God of all. And if he's God of all, and if he's judge, he's got to be a perfect divine judge, which begs the question, do we then all get what we deserved? And the church of Jesus Christ said, exactly, it's a trick question. You don't really know what to say. Do we get what we deserve? He's a perfect, divine, flawless judge. Yes. And so that would beg the question that we have a hard time answering. But look at these two verses together. Psalm 103, maybe even ahead of their time a little bit, the psalmist writes, he has not dealt with us as our sins. What's that word? deserve That's the key word. Keep your eye on the word, this idea of deserve. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous, faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In 1 John 1, we don't see the word deserve, but we see the idea. Those who confess of their sins, God is just. God is fair. God, see, feel how scandalous this is? God is righteous to forgive. But I thought he was a God that judges and punishes all sin because again, we we fire and we imprison any judge that doesn't punish sin or transgressions of the law. So how can he under what circumstance can God remain faithful and righteous and still forgive sin? At the end of the day, it's only because and and catch this. This is uh, the gospel in summary. The penalty due one person who has broken God's good and perfect law is paid by another. Grace is not a cosmic rug under which all of our sins are swept. Sometimes we have that picture of God. And isn't that nice? Isn't that just so nice? We might even steal from the fruits of the Spirit and misuse the word kind. That's so kind, they would just forget wouldn't we love it if parents just exercised this sort of twisted, uh, perverted justice? Wouldn't we love it if the officer that caught us speeding past a school bus that we did not see and still don't think was there with their, with their stop sign out because it was at a school stop and, and some guy had to pay $600? Wouldn't it be nice? Wouldn't it be kind if they would just go, you're sorry, I get that you're sorry, you've told me you won't do it again, I believe you. You're fine. Go ahead. Now, here's the deal. He might believe that I'm sorry. He might believe that I won't do it again. But his job is to punish. My sin, but Paul solves the tension. Second Corinthians five, he made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The theological term is imputation. There's a divine trade that happens. The account balances are switched. And here's how it works. Jesus gets what I deserve. When I place my faith in Him and I trust Him for salvation, that my, my, my record of sin, my debt would be forgiven and I would be made right with God again and given the hope of eternal life with Him. When I put my trust in Jesus Christ for salvation, for forgiveness, I get what He deserves. In a scandalous turn of events, we are, according to Hebrews chapter 12, the righteous made perfect. I would challenge you. I would bet you money. You can't come up with a more scandalous term to describe the people who are saved. It's the prodigal son. You don't just get let back into the home on the premises. You are now more of a son than you've ever been. Jesus takes our rap sheet, we get his resume. Thereby, God exercising mercy while remaining perfectly just. It's amazing. You cannot make this stuff up. And so from this, we get this idea that the cross is not all about mercy. I would say there's nothing else in scripture that points to God's commitment to his justice like the cross. This is the extent to which I will go to save, even if it costs me my life in order to stay righteous and just without compromising who I am. You can't make this stuff up. You can't write it. And so in summary, church, how beautiful, how strong, how righteous is the God of the gospel? And here's a pro tip. You can't make it through a worship set without hitting either of these. I dare you. You will not make it through a worship set. And and this is how this sermon can kind of live on. This reminder, this psalm can kind of live on. Every song that you sing will probably have one of these elements or another. God's beauty, God's strength to save, God's righteousness and mercy. My wife and I went to Fort Worth this past week. I had the privilege of uh, officiating the wedding of a previous student of mine when I was a youth pastor. And uh, we were coming back and driving through Arlington, and I realized, again, what I had forgotten, how much cool stuff there is in Arlington. Some of you were like, yeah, Arlington. Like, Arlington's pretty cool, and we lived there for five years. That's where we met this family and did ministry there, and we go back to do this wedding, driving home, and I'm going, man, this is pretty neat. Uh, we, We had a season pass, maybe one time to Six Flags, and used it four, five times, at the most, hardly ever went because it was so close, so convenient, I'll get there next weekend. What are you, next weekend? And the next weekend rolls around, do you go to Six Flags? No, you do not. You might. We didn't. Barely went to that really cool water park. They've got an awesome football stadium, and I think the old baseball stadium was actually pretty cool. Heck, if you're looking for a car in this market, Division Street through Arlington has you covered. It's a pretty cool little city. And we lived there for five years and there's so much that we, because we were so close, because we had such proximity to it, it was so convenient, we'll, we'll get there. And I think about the words of Sarah, who went on the tour guide or went on the, the tour. She was like, I lived there for 36 years, barely saw, barely even knew some of this existed. May that not be the case, church, with the gospel. We're blessed by an abundance, an embarrassment, really, of riches. Many of you come here week in, week out. Maybe you've been walking with Jesus for such a long time. This psalm is for your reminder. So the songs of wonder, they do this on purpose. They cause us to survey and inspect the gospel for two reasons. Look at verse 8. One is to experience for ourselves, maybe anew, maybe be reminded of all that we have heard. But there's another reason, and this is how I want us to end In verse 13, it gives us another reason to wonder, to survey, to inspect, to take a tour of the gospel. And that is, verse 13, so that we can tell a future generation. Twice in this psalm, the psalmist makes the case that this message is a global message. In verse 2, it's the joy of the whole earth. In verse 10, uh, he says, your praise reaches the the ends of the earth. May the glory of God not stop in Zion. May the glory of Christ and the glory, the beauty, strength and uh, mercy and justice of our God not be contained in these four walls. This is a global message in Psalm 87. um, uh, our, Our complimentary Psalm goes even farther to drive this point home as we close. Psalm 87 says this: a psalm of the sons of Korah, a song. The city he founded is on the holy mountains. The Lord loves Zion's city gates more than all the dwellings of Jacob. Glorious things are said about you, city of God, Selah. Now, so far, this is a really cool recap of Psalm 48. But listen to who the psalmist describes as the citizens of this great city, Zion. Verse 4, I will make a record of those who know me, Rahab, Babylon, Philistia, Tyre, Cush. Each one was born here. And it will be said of Zion, this one and that one were what? Born in her. We have one more of those. And the Most High Himself will establish her. When He registers the people of Zion, of His great city, the Lord will record, this one was born here, Selah. Singers and dancers alike will say, my whole source of joy is in you. Three times the psalmist here describes as being born in, full Fledged citizens of God's uh, great city. People who are violent enemies of God. And so church were reminded that the the God of the gospel. The Zephon glorious, beautiful, strong, just and merciful God of the gospel is our joy. And it is the joy of your neighbor and your co-worker the person that you brought to church this morning at this point, this is kind of awkward, who maybe you've invited to know Jesus. And I'm glad you're here. The God of the gospel is the joy of the earth. And in Jesus Christ, we are, according to Matthew 5, we are the salt and the light of the world. Doesn't that strike you as amazing? He preserves, he flavors and gives abundant life. He described himself as the light of the world. And here he is in Matthew 5 saying, You, church, Christian, believer in Christ, are the salt and the light of the world. May that humble us and remind us that our job is simply to experience that joy and to make that the joy of our neighbor. And So what do we do? Four things. One is we remember that we were made a citizen. Even if we walked with Jesus for a long time before we can remember, we were still not those who chose him. But what did Jesus say? I have chosen you. Even God's chosen people goes back to a guy named Abraham who was chosen as a pagan foreigner himself. There's no one that deserves this access to our God. Let's start there and be humbled that we have access to his holy hill to worship Him, to know Him. Second thing is take a tour of the gospel the way that we did this morning often. Use those active verbs and make sure that you're not a passive participant or bystander to this glorious gospel. Enjoy it. Milk it. Meditate on it. Consider it. And then third, get off your seat in the bus. Go to the front. Grab the microphone. Take others on this tour. Be a tour guide for someone else. Let me read this poem, God's Cause by Valley of Vision. It says this, old language, it's beautiful nonetheless. Sovereign God, thy cause, not my own, engage my heart, and I appeal to thee with the greatest freedom to set up thy kingdom in every place where Satan reigns. Glorify thyself, and I shall rejoice, for to bring uh, honor to thy name is my sole desire. I adore thee, and thou art God, And I long that others should know it, to feel it, and rejoice in it. Oh, that all men might love and praise Thee, that Thou mightest have all glory in the intelligent world. Because they need it, and He deserves it. Amen? And the last thing that we do here, shameless plug, plant new churches. It's implied here, but specifically, pray with me to that and that this would be true about us here personally and corporately as a church. Father, we, we do. We, we ask that this would be true of us, that we would see the beauty and the strength and the mercy and justice in the gospel, that it would be our joy that we would ourselves experience what we have heard again and again and rejoice and that that joy. I pray that you would give us a discontentedness to the point where that joy isn't quite complete until we've shared it with others who still lack it. And be with us as we seek to simply reach a growing city, the prosperous Salina area here in North Dallas in our own backyard for the gospel so that it would be their joy as well. In Christ's name, amen.